0: Over in the book of 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul mentions something very briefly, but very powerfully, about a man who had fallen away from God. In the book of 2 Timothy, it's likely the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. And so we have all of these letters, as you know, that make up so much of the New Testament from his hand. And 2 Timothy is the last letter. And if you trace through the Apostle Paul's letters chronologically, you begin to see that there is this man that he mentions a couple times, and his name is Demas. And Demas is mentioned in both Colossians and he's mentioned in Philemon. In fact, in the end of Philemon, he's specifically categorized as a fellow worker of the Apostle Paul. But it's apparent that something happens with Demas. Between the books of Philemon and 2 Timothy, the, the years in between those letters, something had happened to Demas. And we're not given the specifics. We have no idea what happened between him and Paul. We, we aren't given anything aside from this in 2 Timothy where Paul says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted deserted me think about that like this is a guy who had worked with the apostle paul this is somebody who had seen paul work miracles maybe he had seen some of the most incredible miracles the healing miracles that paul had done the preaching the people that had been saved as a result of paul going into these various cities you can imagine can you imagine walking around with the apostle paul and watching all of the things that he had done I mean, no doubt, Demas was a preacher. He was a teacher. Minimally, he was a gospel giver of some kind. A co-worker in the kingdom of God with Paul. But the final verdict, at least that we see, about Demas is that he became a spiritual adulterer. Demas grew to love the world and the things within the world more than he loved God. The mistress of the world had led him away from his Lord. And although he would have certainly known that that to leave the Apostle Paul, to leave the ministry, to, to leave his relationship with God, that it certainly would have been to bring God into his life as the antagonist. To set God up in opposition to himself. And apparently for Demas, this was well worth the trade. Have you ever encountered Demas's? in the modern-day church. People that, that you have known, they have seemed strong in their love for God, that for years they were working for the kingdom. I've heard all the time, well, so-and-so, they put 10 years into this church. They put 15 years into this church, right? Right? You, you know of people that all of the proper words were described to them maybe in Christianese, that they were passionate for Christ. They were sold out, right? They were on fire for God. But then you found out that they had left the faith. They had fallen in love with the world and the things in the world. And what they had done is they had become spiritual adulterers. Those who would leave the groom of the church, Jesus, for the mistress of the world. In these verses before us in James chapter 4, we're going to look at what James describes for us as this spiritual adultery. And as usual, James is going to hit us between the eyes with one crystal clear idea. That as those who have been given the grace of God, we must refrain from spiritual Adultery, And I think that he hammers this home with three major blows that you'll see on the back of your bulletin in the outline there. That if we're going to refrain from spiritual adultery, first, we must identify our ultimate loyalty. Second, we must remember God's claim on us. And third, we need to humbly receive God's grace. So first, we need to identify our ultimate loyalty. Who is your ultimate loyalty? Look at verse 4. You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you remember how over and over within the book of James so far, James will start a new idea with the word brothers. Over and over, he just says, brothers, brothers, brothers. No less than nine times up to this point in the book of the Bible in chapter 4, he says, know this, my beloved brothers. Or my my, my brothers, show no partiality. Or he says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those poor in the world to be rich in faith? Over and over, you just scan your eyes through the chapters, and he says, brothers, brothers, brothers. James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people. Isn't that such a a whiplash? This this term of endearment, you are my brothers, you are my sisters. Now all of a sudden, you adulterous people. James is channeling his Old Testament prophet, isn't he? Those of you who have read the prophets know that James is, is... really speaking in the spirit of those guys. Much stronger language is used in the Old Testament to refer to the people of God, and they're cheating against God. And because we are a family-friendly church, I'll hold back from some of the words that they use within the Old Testament, but you get the idea. You adulterous people. That gets your attention. Even in the worst situations, or or counseling, or hardest sermons that I've had to give over the last four years, there's never been a time where I looked out at you and said, you adulterous people. I mean, that's a good way to lose the flock, right? But that causes me to stop and think a little bit. Are you adulterous in your relationship with God? Does the title of adulterer belong to you as one who has regularly committed spiritual Adultery. Like if we could spiritualize the book, The Scarlet Letter, would there be those of us who would walk around with an A on our clothes? Could it be that you and I are playing this role? Notice how he defines adultery. He says in verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So, so in other words, it's black or white. If you're going to be friends with the world, you're going to be God's enemy. You're not going to be kind of God's friend and kind of the world's friend, being political, playing both sides of the aisle in regard to your friendships. This is not bipartisan. This is, you're going to be one way or you're going to be the other. There is no gray. If you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. Have you ever seen two people, maybe kids, Uh, who were friends and enemies at the same time. Maybe your child has or had a friend they like to play with a lot, but they fought all the time, right? Sometimes that is referred to being as somebody's frenemy, right? You're you're friends, but at the same time, you're enemies, you're frenemies. And there is no room at all to being a frenemy of God. There's no room for being a frenemy of the world. You're either going to be allegiant to God in your relationship to Him and you submit to Him and Him alone or you don't. And if you choose to be a friend of the world, James says there will be enmity or uh, hostility or deeply rooted antagonism between you and God. It's nice again, right, to have James tell us just how it is. There's no gray here, guys. It's one Or the other. Either you're an adulterer against God as a friend of the world, or you're on God's side. And if you're going to play around on God and become a friend of the world, you are placing yourself in direct opposition to God. Like There's no way around this. So the God who elected you in eternity past and sent His Son to purchase you on the cross of Calvary and He sealed you by His Holy Spirit. Like Some of the things that we've sung about even this morning. If you cheat on that kind of a God who had done all of that for you, you become His enemy. Is that not what He says in the second half of the verse? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You even wish to be a friend of the world. You're setting yourself up as God's enemy. You are now playing the part of the adulteress. But in regard to the world, this bow that would seek to lead us away from God, what does James have in mind as to what the world is? Like when you think of the world, I mean, I don't want you to think of the big blueberry planet that we all live on. When James is talking about the world, what exactly is he talking about? What are the indicators that this one who would seek to lead us away from God, this world, what indicates us to us what that is? Like in the book of Proverbs. Remember back in the book of Proverbs, he's, he's constantly staying in this theme, but in, in terms of actually actual immorality and actual adultery, where he's reminding us all the time, young men in particular, about certain women. He says in chapter 7 of Proverbs, he describes this foolish woman who is dressed like a harlot and she is loud and wayward and she grabs the man and kisses him. She tells the man that her husband isn't home and how she has fixed her bed for their affair to the point where she has even made her sacrifices and made her vows. like She's even like spiritually purified herself. Now she's ready for the sin. And the writer basically says, stay as far as you can away from this woman, right? And so for us, with the mistress of the world, And her batting eyes and her prepared bed, what does that look like so we can stay away? The world is mentioned a lot by the biblical authors as something that is not positive. Jesus talks about the world in John chapter 17, that his disciples are in the world, but they are not of the world, right? Just like he is not of the world, his new disciples are not of the world. They have been sent into it. They're not of it. And the implication is this that once you become a disciple of Jesus, you are no longer of the world. Instead, it's, Genesis, it's Matthew 28 for you. You're not of the world. You're sent into the world to make much of Jesus and to spread the gospel. And so we know the world is not a positive idea. When the authors of the Bible speak of the world in this way, they are again not talking about our planet. They're talking about something like what John says in 1 John 2 where he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For anybody who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them, Right? Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father. It is of the world. And so if if you're going to be a friend of the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. But John says that if you love the world, you don't even have the love of God in your heart. All that's in the world. And then he explains it. These desires of the flesh, and the eyes, and the pride of life that is not from God. That is of the world. And so it gets back to the passions that we all talked about last week in that passage. That the cravings that you have and the lusts that you have, the things that you covet, if this is the nature of your heart, then you do not know God. Peter David says in his commentary that the world represents the whole system of humanity, its institutions, structures, values and mores, as organized without God, or listen to what David Platt, how he explains it, he says, in our culture and even in the church, we have sought after the pleasures of this world in sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, we have satisfied our flesh with the things of this world with more possessions and nicer cars and bigger houses and better luxuries. We have pursued positions, plaudits and popularity. we have lived for, for what is best for us in this world and in the process. We have run around on God. If you profess to be a Christian, would you please consider what it is from the world at this moment that is luring to you? Would you identify what is alluring about this world and spit in its eye? What is it? The luxuries, the cars, the houses, the trinkets. The money. What, what is it that when you're walking down the road of life and it flashes over here that catches your eye and draws you into it? Because if you're a friend of those things and you're possessive and you lust and you covet and you crave those things, could it be that you're an enemy of God? That you are trading God and all of the spiritual blessings he has laid out before you for the stuff of this world. And you might be thinking, like, I've, I've never renounced God. I've never pledged my allegiance to the world around me. But friend, it, it scares me, and Mike and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday, that as our world just continues down their path of entropy and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse, that we're just going to naturally be pulled along with them. Like even as Windsor Christian Fellowship, that there's going to be things within God's Word that as we're going through it, man, that's a hard truth, that's a hard truth. But little by little, we just start moving down that same path that the world is going on. And so no, we may have never with our mouth, like some people were out there, I hate God, I don't believe in God, all that. We might not do that. But little by little, we're making the trade our actions and what we satisfy our passions with reveals what we love. All that what James has pricked us with throughout this book of the Bible, add it all up together, it looks a whole lot more like the world than it does like Christ, right? Like even within the, the problems that he says are within the world, within the first few chapters of this book, like being partial in chapter 2, where you're going to see certain people in the church and other people in the church are going to be partial to some more than the others, Right? That would be worldly. Or by our tongue, which we saw in chapter 3, or the jealousy and selfish ambition in chapter 3, our sinful passions that we looked at last week, in the beginning of chapter 4, you start adding all of these things up. You want to know what it looks like to, to, to be like the world? That's some of what it looks like. If these things describe us, we are becoming a friend of the world, and we are committing spiritual adultery. We are becoming God's enemy. And like we looked at last week with that word passions a person who lives according to them, is what you were before you became a Christian. It should be what describes you before a Christian. When you give your testimony, you get up and say, yes, I lived according to my passions. That's why I was abusive. That's why I was terrible to women. That's why I was a drunk. That's why I was a druggie. All of that. My passions. I'm following after those things. And it's the same for being an enemy of God. When you stand up and give your testimony, you should be saying, this is who I was. Like I was God's enemy. I'm not currently God's enemy, right? Like I was. Paul says in Romans, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So Paul, for him, it's like we were his enemies before we were saved. And of course you can remember Paul's testimony. He used to run around and drag men, women, and children off to prison or Stephen being killed while everybody puts their coats at his feet. He was truly an enemy of Christ to the point where he was allowing the killing of other Christians. But for us, being God's enemy is what we were. But we've been reconciled to Him. Why would we ever want to go back to that? So what could we possibly be thinking when we display acts of betrayal by cozying up to the world more and more. Brothers and sisters, if we're to refrain from spiritual adultery, we need to identify to whom our sole allegiance, our loyalty belongs to, and it must be God and God alone. Second, if we're going to refrain from spiritual adultery, we need to remember God's claim on us. We need to remember God's claim on us. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Just by way of a side comment, this verse in the book of James is the, most, uh, is the verse that has the most questions around it. It's the absolute hardest to translate. But I think that as you read through some of these commentators, you, you read through the, the passage a little bit, you begin to understand at least uh, the nugget of it. And I think that it's this. That God is rightly possessive and jealous concerning the ones that He has elected by His grace, purchased on the cross, and sealed by the Spirit. More simply, God is jealous over you. God thinks of you, and He is jealous over you. When we play the part of the spiritual adulteress, And we become a friend of the world. God is like a husband over his wife. He is not happy. Like the Israelites of old, God told them not to make any carved image or any likeness in order to worship that carved image. And he follows that command by saying, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Deuteronomy, he says basically the same thing, except he adds this. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Do you ever think of God being jealous over you? Like like those times where you actually are wandering and, and you're going astray one of the things that you need to remember is that God has a claim on you and He is jealous over you. Like a husband who has a claim on his wife, she is his. Like a wife with her husband, he is hers. You belong to God. He has claimed you. He is jealous over you. The Bible says that if you have found a good wife, you have found a good thing. And I certainly was able to find a good wife. And I often will say that I trust her more than I trust myself. And, and, and that is absolutely true. I do. And during our marriage, she has never done anything remotely close to making me think that she has affections for anyone else but me. And I thank God for that. But I can remember one time that we were at the Wisconsin State Fair, which is a really big deal. It's their state fair. It's, it's really pretty unbelievable. And they had these pastry things that we were going to go and get. We were going to go get a couple of those with some friends, and we were walking off to get a couple. And she probably doesn't even remember this. But as we were walking, there was this guy that was walking the other way toward us, and he saw Bethany, and he said to his friends, Hey, look at that one. Like he had just left the barn where the cows were, or where the big horses were, or where the pigs were. Hey! Look at that one. Now for any of you husbands who have experienced something like that, like, you know that feeling that arises within you. that you go from just hanging out and go get a pastry and a coffee, right? And then all of a sudden you're ready to go. Like, it's go time. I'm a bear, right? But brothers and sisters, the world is going to do that. That they're going to come by you and they're going to make passes at you. The Bible says that Satan is the ruler of the world, and he and his forces, along with your desires and passions, they are going to be flirting with you. They are going to be checking you out, right? Seeking to bring you down, seeking to make you their friend, seeking to make you adulterate on your God. Don't do it. Make no mistake, God is watching, He is omnipresent. Like You can't leave God's presence. He is jealous over you, right? Like the husband or the wife that would send the private investigator to pursue if they're, if they're nervous, their spouse is cheating. God doesn't need to do that. He's just always there. He's watching. God has made His claim on you. And there are going to be those times where you're going to come to church and you're going to sing very honestly, the words have come now found, where He says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Like, I can feel my heart wandering away from God. I can feel my affections being kindled by this over here in the world, or the things, or the people within the world. And I wonder, this morning, if you've come to church today, but you're constantly feeling that tuck, and you're tired of fighting it, and you're ready to pursue it, the song continues though, and come now found, it says Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your cults, courts above. Like, tether me to yourself, God. Bind me. Don't loosen the chain. I would ask you, friends, to remember God's claim on you, to depend on Him by looking to Him for this third point here. His grace. If we have any hope at all of abstaining from friendship with the world, we are going to need to humbly receive God's grace. Look at verse 6. But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. How am I going to fight this thing? When When I am being pulled... How am I going to fight? It's going to be God's grace. A word like grace should make us smile, should make us laugh, and it should make us weep at the same time. The joy of a life that continues to grasp what grace has been extended and the weeping at what the grace of Christ cost him. We are privileged people to have been the recipients of God's amazing Grace. We are nothing without the grace of God. We are nothing without God's grace extended to us in order to save us. We are nothing without God's grace after that to make us more and more like Jesus in our sanctification process. We need grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in order to be like Christ. But the good news is, as Augustine has said, God provides what God demands. So God demands your fidelity to Him, which can be hard. In and of our own strength, it is impossible. But with grace, it's possible. That God provides what God demands. He demands your fidelity. He remains you to remain true. He, he demands you remain true to him. And that's possible by God's grace. As one commentator has said, God's longing for us is driven by his own holy jealousy, but God is as gracious as he is holy, and he supplies us with all the grace we need to meet his holy demand. God will enable, by his grace, our relationship to him, but there is a person to whom God will not dispense his grace to. Did you notice that in verse 6? God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. That word for pride is made up, uh, it it means, it's drawn from a couple Greek Greek words that mean above and to show oneself. The person who would seek to be above or to show oneself, God is going to oppose that person. A proud person, to go back to verse 4, embodies what it means to be an enemy of God. A proud person is a friend of the world. A proud person is going to bring the opposition of God. I love what Thomas Brooks says about this. In other sins, a man flies from God. But in this sin, pride, a man flies upon God. God opposes the proud because the proud literally fly in the face of God. The Bible says in Proverbs 8.13, I hate pride and arrogance. In Proverbs 16, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Like God hates pride and proud people are an abomination to him. The Bible is clear that if we would dare to be a proud person, God is going to resist us. Pride is a deep offense in the face of God. Again, Thomas Brooks says, God defies such as deify themselves. God defies those who deify themselves. I love that. That He's going to defy every single one of us who are going to deify Himself. So if you're going to pull a Nebuchadnezzar like we talked about in the book of Daniel a few months ago, and you're going to walk around your kingdom, and you're going to extol yourself, God is going to cut you down. Or worse, he'll let you continue in it. God defies such as deify themselves. God opposes the proud. But to whom does his grace flow? If it doesn't go to the proud, to whom will his grace pour to the humble? Which in our context today, If we're going to receive the grace that we need to remain close to our Lord, we are going to need that grace and such grace will only be given to you if you are humble. And I would argue that this is why you must understand and you must understand well and preach to yourself well the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't understand the gospel and you're not constantly repeating that truth to you daily, pride is crouching at the door. How can I be proud when I look at Jesus and look at what it cost him to forgive me? Even if I were the only person on earth and Jesus would have to come to rescue me, it would take the bloody death that he experienced to save me from my sin. So how can I be proud when it took the death of the perfect God-man to forgive me of my sin? And knowing what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, that he, became, he humbled himself And he humbled himself to the point of death. Even the death on the cross. How dare I then act outside the bounds of biblical humility? Milton Vincent says, Humility grows lushly in the atmosphere of the gospel. And the more humility flourishes within me, the more I experience God's grace along with the strengthening His grace provides. Do you want that? Do you want humility to grow lushly In your life. Then understand the gospel. Understand what Christ had to go through for you. In order to forgive you. And as it gets in you more and more. It's going to produce humility in your life. Those who understand and apply the gospel well in their lives. Are people of great humility. And you know what happens as a result of that? When that humility forms within you. The Bible says that unlike the proud who draw the opposition of God, you will actually draw the gaze of God. Isaiah 66 says this, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You want God to look at you affectionately? This is the one to whom he'll look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at the word of God. This is how we please the Lord. We ask Him and seek Him for this deep humility so that we might draw His loving gaze, not the jealous stare. Brothers and sisters, what's it going to be? Is your loyalty to the world growing? Or is your loyalty to Christ growing? Do you remember the claim that God has on you? Or are you trying to stake your claim in this world? Are you humbly receiving God's grace? Or does God stand in opposition to you? May God help us to depend on the grace that we need in order to remain loyal to Him. In order to remember His claim on us. In order to rest in His grace for us. Brothers and sisters, we must refrain from spiritual adultery. Let's pray.